All right, everyone. So uh, welcome back from uh, Thanksgiving. Hope you all had a great time. And I'm just going to share what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for this community. I'm thankful for the tips that you guys have been so willing to share with us, your wins and the action that you've taken. It's just been fun to be a part of it. Uh, We are going to be moving into end of year tax planning. This has been a squirrely year. Uh, and to say the least understatement of the year, uh, and, uh, there, you know, it, it, maybe does it change the framework? Honestly, we're going to do this kind of end of year tax planning on probably close to an annual basis, because there is just a checklist of items that you should be aware of. And as you start getting farther on your path, uh, to financial independence, the checklist for you might get longer because you have access to more tools and reasons to you more tools. So it's just one of those, even me at this point, I get value from this checklist we're having Sean Mullaney, the Fi Tax Guy. Those of you that listened to uh, Friday's episode knew that this was coming, and we're going to be doing a deep dive into the consideration. So, with that, welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This Choose Fi. You're listening to Choose Fi Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys, let's dive into that. Really excited about talking about these year-end tax tips with Sean Mullaney and also Brad Barrett, my co-host. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I'm doing quite well. And yeah, uh, a squirrely year. <laughs> that, that is the the understatement of the century, certainly. It's, I mean, frankly, it's hard to believe that it's essentially December already, right? And we have to start thinking about these year-end considerations. I mean, this is, time has been uh, a bit unpredictable, I feel like, this year. and yeah, I mean, we are at the doorstep of December and it's time really that we all we all think about these things and we talk with Sean about, okay, what's the normal checklist? And then maybe, just maybe, there are some things that are possibly advantageous to us because of all the insanity that's been going on this year, obviously in the world, in the tax code, in the economic environment, et cetera. So yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into it. So Sean. Uh, welcome back. I think you're our, our most frequent guest at this point. So always glad to have you here. Thanks so much, Brad and Jonathan. Always a pleasure to join you guys. So uh, 2020 year in tax planning, uh, people are coming back and they're ready. They know they're getting focused on this kind of this end of the year uh, preparations. And I guess before we go through just the general checklist, what are the asterisks that we're taking a look at? Like the things that are uniquely related to 2020 that just make this different than maybe anything that we've kind of nothing that would have been on this checklist in 2019, 2018, what, you know, whatever. Well, so Jonathan, the first one, and I, to my mind, the biggest one in the tax world is Roth conversions. Now, yes, technically speaking, Roth conversion should be on your checklist every year, but 2020 is quite unique in this regard. And I, I say that for two reasons. One, you have a lot of listeners who, for whatever reason, in 2020 have a diminished income, right? It could be a married couple and one of them lost their job for six months because of coronavirus. It could be a single person and he or she lost their job for nine months. And so they have a unique opportunity by the end of 2020 to do some Roth conversions 
at a low marginal federal income tax bracket, right? That's always a consideration, right? If you can find yourself in a year where, for whatever reason, your income is much lower than it normally is, Roth conversion should be very much top of mind. And for many, 2020 is that year. So Roth conversions should be very much top of mind. And that needs to happen by December 31st. There's no extension into the next year for a Roth conversion. You can't do it in January or February and then say it's a 2020 conversion. The conversion needs to happen within 2020. Okay, so let's get let's get let's get actionable there. So like are there breakpoints that in particular some individuals are perking up and some aren't right now? Are we going to our accountant for this? Like what's the what's the practical part of what we're looking at and then is this how easy is it for us to execute on this personally? So Jonathan, you're always right that a lot of times these things benefit from professional consultations. That said, it depends on the complexity of your situation, right? If you're a W-2 worker and that's most of your income, you can find the tax brackets online and you could say, hey, you know, what did I make last year? What, did I, what am I going to make this year? Is there a delta there? And what you're looking for is you're looking for, hey, last year, typically you're in, say, the 24% bracket or the 22% bracket. And then you look this year and you say, hey, wait a minute, with my diminished income, and remember, things like unemployment income are taxable for federal purposes, right? So your income might not be as diminished as you might initially think. But you know, you start off with what do you think your taxable income is, and then you apply that to the tax brackets, and you might find, hey, wait a minute, I'm not in the 22% bracket anymore. I'm not in the 24% bracket anymore. I'm in the 10% bracket. I'm in the 12% bracket. And you guys have talked about this in the past. I generally agree. If you can lock in a 10% federal income tax on a Roth conversion, in most cases, that's really effective planning. If you can lock in a 12% bracket, that again is going to be effective planning. Um, so it, it does vary, but those two first, those two first tax brackets, the 10% and the 12% federal are sort of the real guideposts in terms of, hey, maybe I should be seriously thinking about a Roth conversion. I would say too is, as your situation gets more complicated, right? You're married, you've got a spouse maybe with self-employment income, you've got you know different investments. It may be the case that you want to seek out professional assistance. And I will say, right, we're at year end, you're going to want to do that much sooner rather than later. You don't want to be the person calling your financial planner or your accountant on December 30th, right? That's not a good place to be. <laughs> Yeah, that is uh that's good advice in and of itself. So let's let's take 30 seconds real quick, Sean and and uh, for people who aren't familiar with Roth conversions, let's just explain what that is, what you're doing exactly from taking money in a traditional IRA or 401k and having forcing this taxable event. I'll, I'll let you go since you're the expert here, but, but yeah, let's, let's really make this clear. And then let's also say, okay, how much space do I have? How much can I actually enact on this conversion? Right. So, yes. and what happens if I go over, you know, people are worried about these things like, oh, what yes. if I take too much and convert too much? Talk us through that. Okay. So generally speaking, the most common form of Roth conversion is logging into your investment account, right? With a traditional IRA. So generally speaking, we're talking about traditional IRAs. We'll talk about a, a variant of this in a second, but most common form, go onto your traditional IRA. And you'll have a button there. You'll have a mechanism on the website portal to convert to a Roth IRA. 
And so what you would do is you would say, hey, I have a certain amount in my traditional IRA. I want to convert to a Roth. The website's going to give you some warnings, right? It's going to say, hey, this is fully taxable if you do this. And the answer is yes, you want it to be taxable because the idea is, say you had $10,000 in a traditional IRA. You convert all 10000 to a Roth IRA. Let's just eliminate. You don't have any non-deductible contributions or anything like that. The idea is you're actively planning into a taxable event. That's part of the advantage of being in the FI community is you often have this ability to pick when you're taxed. And what you're doing is you're saying 2020 is a year I'm in a low tax bracket. I'm going to electively choose through this Roth conversion to be taxed in 2020 because I'm worried in the future my income is going to be higher and I'm going to pay a higher tax rate. So let me convert the traditional IRA, in this case, 10000 to a Roth IRA. The website's going to say, warning, warning, this is going to be taxable. You generally, you know, it's okay. And it's going to say, do you want any income or any income tax withheld? You generally, in most cases, do not want to withhold taxes. Um, there can be cases where you might, but it's very rare. In most cases, bread and butter, Roth conversion, you don't want to have any taxes withheld. And it just moves from that traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. It's a taxable event. In January, February, or March, you'll get a Form 1099-R reporting the $10,000 as taxable income. You put it on your tax return. It's ordinary income. But you forever move that money from forever taxed accounts to never taxed accounts, right? So that is a powerful planning strategy if you can do it in a year where your taxable income is low. Now, Brad, you mentioned this, this issue of, well, what if I do too much, right? Well, too much is a very subjective thing in my <laughs> mind. And I have yet to encounter the prospective client or client that has too much in a Roth IRA. So, all right, let's, let's say, you know what? You were in the 12% tax bracket. You converted 20,000 from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. It pushed you into the 22% tax bracket for, by like $5,000. So on the first 15,000, you pay a 12% tax. The next 5,000, you pay a 22% tax. Is that exactly efficient? Not exactly. But I'm here to tell you, in 40 years, your future self is not going to bemoan the fact that you paid a little too much tax 40 years ago. Uh, your future self is going to be pretty happy you've got that money in a Roth IRA. Yeah. No, I love that. And, and I'm so glad you set that as all the downside, right? The opportunity cost here is if you happen to go over that space that you have in the 12% bracket is just that little bit of extra tax that you're going to pay now at the 22%, right? So the Delta, as you said, the difference, right? is just that extra 10% in tax you're going to pay in this case on that $5,000. So, you know, to your point, it's in the Roth. There's nothing catastrophic. I think that's, that's what I yes. really wanted to get across here is Nothing terrible is going to happen. There's not going to be any penalty. It's just you're paying at the next marginal bracket, and that is that. Yeah, put it this way. In the context of 2020, this is a really <laughs> minor problem, okay? <laughs> that is very true. Very One true. other thing I'm going to mention, Brad, is you actually have the ability to do this in your 401k at some employers, not all employers, right? Some employers have a 401k plan where you could do a Roth conversion within that plan. So you might be saying, well, this is a great conversation. My taxable income's low, but I don't have a traditional IRA. Well, then the next place you look is your workplace plan. And maybe you got $100,000 sitting in your traditional 401k and your employer allows you to convert within that plan, right? So maybe what you do is you say, oh, all right, I don't have a traditional IRA. Next step is I convert within my workplace 401k 
from a traditional 401k to a Roth 401k, same tax effect. And then the last thing just to keep in mind is it is irrevocable, right? So there's no do-over, right? The second you convert, you've converted. Again, in the context of 2020, it's a minor problem if you're like, oh, yeah, I went $1,000 over what I should have converted. Uh, Minor problem. And 40 years from now, you'll probably be pretty happy with yourself that you over-converted, so to speak. Hey, this is Andrew from the Choose a Five team. I hope you're enjoying the show. We're going to get right back to it after these quick messages. One other thing that you mentioned in there that I think is really critical for just the understanding and mindset of these year-end tax planning tips is when you have to follow through on this, right? So you said in this case for the Roth conversion, it has to be by 1231, right? So by December 31st of that calendar year, it has to happen. Whereas many things are by the tax return deadline, right? Which in most normal years is April 15th. So I think it's critical. And maybe you can talk about like a general framework for that if there is one, or certainly we can mention either the 1231, 415, or if there are other deadlines, you know, based on each of these checklist items, because I think that that is just such important information. Yeah, that's right, Brad. To my mind, it's there's some December 31st deadlines, there's some April 15th deadlines, and then there's some as soon as possible deadlines, right? I'll start with the as soon as possible deadline, right? The as soon as possible deadline, to my mind, is solo 401k. There are actually several deadlines in the solo 401k world. This is if you're self-employed or you have an S-corporation, you qualify for a solo 401k. The big thing on that is time is ticking on that one. And I usually don't tell people, hey, hurry up. But on this one, I would say hurry up um, because this one requires some intention. It generally benefits from dealing with a professional. So if you've got a small business, if you've got self-employment income, you haven't thought about a solo 401k, you haven't thought about something I've blogged about called the qualified business income deduction. That one, I would say, get up with a professional very soon in most cases. Then you look at your year-end deadlines, and a lot of that is just getting transactions done, right? Uh, charitable contributions, for example, that's a big one. It's got to be by December 31st. The ones that tend to be April or uh, yeah, April 15th, those ones tend to be the tax accounts, Right. So the big ones there are traditional IRA contributions, Roth IRA contributions, and health savings account contributions. The general rule, and this is a very general rule, is if you have a tax account that's an individual tax account, a Roth IRA, traditional IRA, HSA, it's likely going to be a tax return deadline, not a year end deadline. You said the time is ticking on the solo 401k. And I'm just curious. the, the part of that that stood out to me is there's two pieces. There's the individual that doesn't have one set up and the individual that hasn't funded it. Are they the same deadline? Um, the, the person that's just having, oh, 401k, I didn't mean to do that. It's going to be a solo. Um, what, what is the time is ticking on the funding or the creation or both? It's actually both, Jonathan, especially if you've not created it because it does take a little time to create it, right? If somebody is in our audience right now and they're like, oh, Roth IRA, that sounds like a great idea. I've never had one of those. You can get one of those set up with a discount brokerage pretty quickly. Solo 401k is going to take a little more time, right? They're going to want to see your EIN. They're going to have a lot more paperwork. So I would say is if you don't have a solo 401k set up right now, you're going to want to call some of the, you know, one or two of the discount brokerages and see what you can do to get one set up. Again, assuming you qualify, right? If you're a W-2 worker, you don't have any self-employed 
uh, earnings, you're not an S corp owner, solo 401k is not for you. But it might be that you're self-employed or you have a side hustle. Solo 401k might very well be for you. And then in terms of funding, the deadlines do vary. But in most cases, what makes the most sense is to have a documented game plan by year end. So it may not be that you necessarily have to fund it by December 31st, but you're going to want a well-documented, thought-out game plan for funding by the end of the year. It depends. If you're in an S corporation, you actually do have to generally fund the employee side by year end. Um, that's part of the reason I say the deadlines vary. There's actually a lot of different deadlines. Hard to fully digest in one podcast. That's more of a general year end planning thing. But my my overall point obtains, which is get intentional, get focused. If you do have a solo 401k now, or if you need to have a solo 401k now, I should say. Awesome. Thank you for that clarification. And I can say when I was setting up a solo 401k for, for my wife and I, I went with fidelity based on a couple you know recommendations I had at the time, uh, it was a little bit of a process paperwork that you had to fill out. I submitted it. They told me I did something wrong. I had to get, you know, it's just, just, it takes a little bit. It's not as opposed to a Roth, you just a couple button clicks on the right platform, you get it funded. You're kind of good to go. So time is ticking on that. If you had it in your goal, don't wait till, don't wait till Christmas to get started on this. Um, all right. So with that in mind, we've, we've kind of done a macro picture. We've talked about the uniqueness of 2020, and then we've done kind of one actionable bit here. Can we just, uh, do, can we actually hear the checklist? Like, like all, what are the things that we're thinking about and the timelines that are associated with it? I know that we'll probably be able to get some sort of PDF or you'll have something on your site where people can kind of map this out, but for the individuals taking notes, cause notes drive action, what's the actual checklist of things they're writing down to consider and the timelines associated. Yeah. So the first one is charitable contributions, right? And to my mind, there are two ones to consider. One might be a donor advised fund, right? So you can, we, you, we've talked about the donor advised fund a whole lot on the Choose a Five podcast. These things are great. They allow you to sort of front load a charitable contribution in one year. And then you take, you know, so you itemize at a higher level in one year, and then you do the standard deduction in the next few years, as you drain your donor advised fund, you send that to the, the intended beneficiaries, right? So donor advised fund is, is very much worth thinking about if you're going to itemize this year, right? If you're nowhere near itemizing, donor advised fund probably isn't the way to go. If you're already itemizing and you say, I don't need a donor advised fund, I'm already itemizing, just year-end charitable contributions. That's another one to think about, right? Get them in before December 31st, it, Brad, like you were saying, like nobody's going to come arrest you if you get it in January 1st. It just means, all right, it's next year's tax deduction. So you'd probably rather have it this year in many cases, not all cases. Um, the other thing to think about for those who don't itemize and have no intention of itemizing, you can take up to $300 in only 2020 as a charitable contribution on page one of your tax return. You don't have to itemize. This is a one-year 2020 thing. Uh, they might make it permanent in the future. Up to $300 of cash contributions can be uh, taken as a deduction against your so-called adjusted gross income. So I'd say charitables is a big one in terms of a checklist, and you want to do that by December 31st. And Sean, that $300 that's uh, new this year, is that per individual? If for people married, filing, join, is that $300? Is it $600? How does that work? Unfortunately, it's per tax return. So it's only $300 per tax return. It's a little bit of a marriage penalty. Um, but, you know, it, it's a little benefit. And here's the thing. Most Americans do not itemize. So it is a nice little benefit yeah. to reduce your taxable income. Again, $300 is not going to get you to financial independence. 
But look, you're probably giving to charity, right? And if you give $500 a year and you've never been able to deduct it, and now in 2020, you get a little tax deduction, that's gravy. That's fantastic. So just make sure to keep those receipts and, and those sorts of things. To be clear, what we're saying is, you know, a $300 deduction is at your current marginal tax bracket. So if you find yourself that's in right. a 24% marginal tax bracket, you get a $300 deduction. We're talking about, you know, uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to air my craziness here, but, uh, but it's probably, you know, sub $100 of benefit, right? And, and not, not, not to write it off, but just so people kind of understand yeah, you're not, you're not yeah. paying $300 less in taxes. You're just reducing your AGI by that amount. So your current marginal tax rate needs to be applied to that to really demonstrate the full benefit. But you know, it's, it's nice. Nice gesture, I guess. Yeah, it's a little something, Jonathan. It's nothing to be all that concerned. I mean, the action item would be just track your contributions just to make sure you get it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Because a lot of people are doing these anyways. Like that's the biggest point. A lot, most of you do some form of charitable giving, nonprofit to a church to an organization. If you are, don't leave this on the table. There's no reason to. The government's fine. That's right. Figure it out. That's right. Uh, in terms of another checklist item, uh, would be your small business expenses by year end, right? So a lot of small businesses, not all of them, are on the cash basis of accounting. So what that means is you pay an expense, you deduct it when you pay it, as opposed to when you accrue it, right? So uh, this could be the sort of thing where, hey, 2020 might have been a really good year. I have clients where 2020 was an unexpected good year for them. And if they're on the cash basis, they might want to accelerate some of those payments in uh, at the end of the year. So they might want to accelerate, make sure they cut the check to their vendor in December, not in January, to get the deduction on this year's tax return. The, the flip of this could be on the revenue side, right? Maybe you had a great year in 2020 in your small business. You might want to take a little more vacation in December and do more work in January so you get more income in January as opposed to December. And then the other thing could be like, no, you actually want to delay expenses, right? So it might be 2020 was a really bad year for you, but 2021 is going to be a good year. Then all the flip of what I just said applies, right? Work harder in December, get more revenue in December, do more expenses in January. So that is something to be intentional about for those of you with a small business and are on the cash basis of accounting, which is most, not certainly not all taxpayers. Um, that's one on the checklist. Yeah, Sean, I like that. And and this was especially pertinent to to me and actually the the businesses that that I run a, a year ago when we talked about this. I my question to you was based on when you're actually paying this. So I was under the impression that so let's say I put some expenses on my credit card in December, but didn't actually pay the cash back to my credit card company in January, right? I was under the misimpression that I could not deduct it on my current year's return, that it was because it was cash basis that I paid the cash to the credit card company in January. So therefore it'd be the next tax return. But you very clearly said, no, 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 that is that expense was actually paid in cash to whoever that, you know, vendor or whatnot in December. So therefore it's a valid deduction in, in that case, in the current tax year. So I guess, First, I'd love for your, you know, just to confirm that that's accurate. And second, let's say for someone who is cutting a check for an expense on December 30th or December 31st, but again, it's not cashed or deposited until the following tax year. Is it a valid deduction for the current year or is it in this case, would it be 2021? 
So a couple of thoughts on that. You're absolutely right, Brad. The credit card works for a cash basis taxpayer, and it works for your charitable contributions too. That's where it could have a, a big applicability is, right? You make those year-end contributions on your credit card um, by December 31st. That all works. Now, in terms of checks and mailing, this is where evidence matters, right? So if the IRS were to ever challenge you, right, if you cut that check on December 31st, 30th and put it in the mailbox. And that was a, a business day. And so the post office could mail it by December 31st, December 31st, you generally are okay, but you got to be able to prove that, right? So this is, you know, cause what's going to happen is that's going to sit at the vendors, you know, uh, place of business. They're not going to deposit till the second, third or fourth or whatever. So you're going to want to be able to prove that as best you can, right? And that's actually where a credit card might even be a better way of proving it, right? So you go online, you pay that bill December 30th with a credit card, there's a nice paper trail, you're good. Um, you know, if you put it in the mailbox on December 31st, it's going to be a little tougher to prove to sustain the deduction in 2020. So Sean, and next, I had a buddy of mine that was uh, coming to me and asking me about a backdoor Roth IRA. He had never had one before. He wanted to set one up. And I think he was a little surprised to find out that it was tied to end of year because he thought the Roth IRA, you know, you can, you can fund that all the way up till April 15th. And upon a little research, it looks like if you're going to be implementing a backdoor Roth IRA strategy, it's a little bit more tied to end of year. Is that accurate? And maybe can you add you know, a little bit more behind like what that is and, and why you might want that. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, this is an area of a lot of confusion. And actually, it's not really all that tied to year end in terms of your ability to do a backdoor Roth, right? So let's, let's step back. And what are we talking about? Backdoor Roth IRA applies when your income is too high to make a regular Roth IRA contribution, but you still want to get some money into a Roth IRA. How do you do it? Generally speaking, the backdoor Roth IRA is the technique you need to use. Um, but there are some pitfalls, and one of them is a year-end pitfall, and it's this. Let's say you worked at um, a, an employer through October, and then you leave, and you had a 401k there, and you say, you know what? I want that 401k in a traditional IRA I control, so I'm going to roll that 401k into a traditional IRA, All right, and you do that in December. Well, what if you did a backdoor Roth IRA back in like January, February? And what, what happens is having money in a traditional IRA at year end is generally not a good thing if you're doing the backdoor Roth IRA. So for those in the audience that have already done a backdoor Roth IRA for 2020, the planning point is this. Just make sure by December 31st, you don't roll in any old 401ks, 403bs, 457s into a traditional IRA. You can do it in Jan January 1st, and it's not going to be a problem for your 2020 backdoor Roth IRA that you already did. But if you do it you know, before 20, uh, 2021, you could run into a problem for your 2020 backdoor Roth IRA. What it'll do is it'll largely tax that transaction. Again, like we said, not the end of the world, not a huge 2020 problem, but certainly not tax efficient. Okay. Um, I've posted a lot on my blog about planning around this stuff, about making sure you're, I call, I use the term clean, right? Just have no money in those traditional IRAs at year end. And then what if you did and you're looking to, hey, is there any way I could, you know, improve this situation, you might be able to mo move that money from the traditional IRA to your workplace 401k by year end to get clean there. 
Um, I have blogged about this issue. It's it's sort of this interesting little nuance on backdoor Roth IRAs. You just want to make sure you're clean by the end of the year. And if you're not, it's an issue. It's going to cost you some tax. But in the context of 2020, maybe we say, okay, learned a lesson, move on. All right. So for clar- clarification here, because I think there are probably more people in this situation than we might find just because the first part's easy. You leave your job at some point, change employers, we're not even talking about fire. We're just talking about change employers and you roll money yep. out of your employer 401k into your own Vanguard IRA. You have it all sitting there in your Vanguard IRA or whatever, your Fidelity IRA, your Schwab IRA, it's yours. It's not owned or maintained by your employer and you get access to whatever funds you want. That happens all the time. People leave their employer, roll their money out of their employer 401k, so it's sitting there. And now they've gotten a new job, they have started their own business and they're at a point now where they're like, dang, I just blew this game up. I'm not even eligible for a Roth IRA right now. You're telling me I can still fund it using this backdoor method? But the problem is their finances are a mess with this strategy in mind currently because they might have several traditional IRAs still sitting out there that complicate this because of something called pro rata. That, that's kind of what we're battling up against. You're going to have this mix of money that was pre-tax and money that's now post-tax. And what you're suggesting is a stepwise process to clean that up ahead of leveraging a, a backdoor Roth technique. That's exactly right, Jonathan. It's basically what you would do is if you want to employ the backdoor Roth IRA for 2020 and you find yourself, hey, I've got money in a traditional IRA from an old 401k, very common fact pattern. Step one to my mind is get yourself clean if you can, right? So contact your workplace, your new employer 401k plan, ask for their so-called summary plan description. In there, there's probably the rules about whether that plan will accept a rollover from a traditional IRA. Most of them will, by the way. So step one is roll that traditional IRA money into your work, new workplace 401k. And then step two would be implement the backdoor Roth IRA planning if that's what you want to do. And the nice thing about that, Jonathan, is you can you have until April 15th to make that first step, which is that non-deductible $6,000 2020 traditional IRA contribution. So get yourself clean as soon as you can, right? You that if you do that in 2021, then you have some time on this. Um, so yeah, if you're saying, hey, I want to do a backdoor Roth IRA, but I got a traditional IRA, there's planning that can be done. I have a whole blog post on that very situation um, where it's like, hey, get yourself clean first, and then you have till April 15th to do the traditional IRA contribution for 2020. So there, there's some flexibility there, but you got to work with your workplace 401k plan. Nice. Yeah. We'll definitely link that up in the show notes, obviously. And yeah, it looks like the next item on our checklist here. So many people have heard of tax loss harvesting. Uh, there's also tax gain harvesting, which is something that is maybe uniquely beneficial to people in the FI community. So let's talk about that. And I assume these are 1231 deadlines, but definitely let us know. 100% Brad, uh, those are 1231 deadlines because those are natural transactions, right? You could sell or you know, you could sell stock anytime. That's not a tax transaction, it's just a natural transaction. That needs to happen by December 31st. Um, I think most of the audience, we've talked a lot about tax loss harvesting. Big thing on that is the deadline is 1231. And you know, I and many others have blogged about this issue about the wash sale. You can't repurchase those securities. 
within the 30 days before or after the, the lost sale. So you just want to be careful about that. Uh, tax gain harvesting is a unique opportunity that often applies in the FI community, especially in early retirement in the FI community. So this is, hey, you know what? 20 years ago, I bought Apple stock and it's gone through the roof, right? It could be, it doesn't have to be Apple stock, just giving you an example. And you say, look, I got a big capital gain in that thing. I don't want to sell it. But wait, you know, the, the capital gain rates are very different. And if you're at the 12% normal marginal federal income tax bracket or lower, you have a 0% capital gains tax rate today. So what you would might do is you might just sell that Apple stock and do one of two things. You might say, look, I want to be more diversified. I'm going to go buy a, an, an index fund, right? So you might do that. Or you might say, no, I love Apple. Like, I don't care about diversification, or at least not with respect to Apple. I'm not here to recommend any securities or anything like that. I'm just saying you might be very happy to own Apple. So you sell Apple stock, you recognize a big capital gain. It keeps you still in the 12% tax bracket. And then you go rebuy Apple. And now you've, what we call it reset your basis. So in the future, if you ever had to sell Apple, you'd have a very small gain or maybe even a loss, right? So it's a way to reset your basis without paying federal income tax. The one little thing you want to be cautioned or concerned about there is state income tax, right? So state income tax, most states do not favor capital gains the way the federal tax rules work. Now, in most cases, that's going to be a very small tax, but you do want to be aware that this tax gain harvesting strategy, if you live in a state with an income tax, probably is going to have a little bit of state tax leakage. And Sean, unlike so tax loss harvesting to avoid the wash sale rules, you need to be and and let's say you wanted to repurchase the exact same security. There is yeah. a timing issue, whereas with the tax gain harvesting, there is no timing issue. Right. So definitely fill us in on the exact specifics of that. That's right, Brad. Uh, tax loss harvesting has they call it a wash sale rule. And that means the 30 days before your lost transaction and the 30 days after your lost transaction, you've got some handcuffs, right? So you and your spouse cannot repurchase substantially similar securities um, in that time frame. If you do, you lose the loss. It's not a big deal, but you would lose the ability to claim that tax loss that you were trying to harvest. And, and also, John, I think it's worth pointing out, just like before, it's also not binary. It's just to the point that you bought it back, right? Like it's not, you don't lose the entire, uh, uh, the entire loss. It's just like if you sold 30,000 of something to capture it and then you bought a thousand, that thousand is going to be counted against the third. You know, it's, 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 my point is it's not binary and it doesn't invalidate the entire transaction. I think it's a it's really- It's incremental, John. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incremental, meaning- it's a to the extent rule, right? So sometimes people get tripped up when they have dividend reinvestment. So they have a small dividend and that will trigger the wash sale rule uh, up to the amount of shares that you dividend reinvest. Not a huge deal, but you lose a little bit. Um, and then in terms of the, the nature of the loss, it's a temporary disallowance essentially if, you if it's all in taxable accounts. So if you you know, sell stock at a loss in your taxable account and then rebuy it in a taxable account, the, the disallowed loss hops onto the new security. So it's no big deal. In the future, you'll just get that loss. There can be a little bit of an issue if you rebuy that same stock or the same securities in like a 401k or a Roth IRA or traditional IRA, because then there's no real answer as to where the, does the additional basis go that you had your disallowed loss. Um, 
so it may be a permanent disallowance in that case. How complicated is this to track? Like, you know, when you're investing, when you're using these uh, investment companies, they all provide for you. Is it W-9s at the end of the year? You get a, and is all of this, when you take these and you plug them into your accounting software or you take it to your accountant, is most of this just automatically taken care of for you? Just plug it in? Or is there some real nuance to being able to, you know, uh, grab this tax loss harvesting when it's accounting season, when it, when it's time to do that? Yeah. So Jonathan, great question. Uh, I'll give you three different answers because I'm a tax professional. <laughs> if you do this all in a, a single brokerage taxable account, right? So let's just say you have uh, Vanguard and you have a taxable account, you do a, a sale and then you trip the wash sale by rebuying it in that account, whether it's dividend reinvestment, it's almost automatic. It basically is automatic. It'll show up in your 1099s. Uh, they'll have the loss that you would have had, they have the wash sale loss. It's all taken care of, no problem. But oh, what I said if you W9, sell it? Ten ninety nine is where you I was said going. W9, 1099, Do not worry about it. They're going to get you the form. You were very kind. You were very kind to give that back to me gently. Ten ninety nine is definitely what I was going for. <laughs> all right, so that's the first scenario. Second scenario is you sell at Vanguard, right? So you sell a hundred shares of XYZ stock, claim a loss. And then you, the next day, go to Fidelity and buy 100 shares. You're subject to the wash sale rule. The 1099s are not going to capture that, right? So um, look, when the IRS examines you, they'll have access to all your, your transaction records. They're going to figure it out, right? But technically speaking, you're going to have to make an adjustment you know, when you're doing your tax return or you're working with your paid preparer. Right. So there's that. And then what if you do it through a retirement account? And that too is very confusing because you'll have this loss, but then your retirement account bought the the stock or securities. It's going to be very hard to track. But again, you know, the IRS, you know, on exam is going to basically have access to all that. So you're going to want to try as best you can to make the right adjustments. So that had actually teased me up really with where I was going. This a lot of us end up with various accounts and various platforms. And when we're talking about tax loss harvesting and capital gains harvesting, it pays to have a plan, a specific account at a specific brokerage that you use specifically for this purpose. Um, that way you can keep the data and the tax records as clean as possible. And then also be wary of the fact that if you're making purchases on other platforms, don't do anything to complicate that unnecessarily uh, because you pay for that when it comes to tax season in terms of now you have to keep better records. You have to figure out how to make these adjustments. So this is kind of where I was going with that. Do you agree with that assessment? Jonathan, I largely agree with what you're saying. The one thing I will say though, is that I believe tax loss harvesting should be a tactic and not a goal. And what I mean by that is I don't believe you should set up your portfolio to tax loss harvest. I think you should only do it in those years where you're down I would rather you invest for total return and hope and pray that everything goes up. And in those random years where things go down, maybe you do a little tax loss harvesting. I'm not fond of doing the, I'm going to own a hundred individual stocks in this account so that I'm, I'm going to hope and pray that three or four of them go down this year so I can tax loss harvest every year. Because like you were saying about that $300 charitable deduction, you're not going to get to financial independence because you had a $3,000 tax loss harvesting loss on your tax return every year. You're going to get to final financial independence through total contributions and total return. And so that's the game I would play and then pull that tax loss harvesting lever in those years where you got some losses. 
Yeah, Sean, I agree. Certainly don't let the uh, tax tail wag the overall financial independence uh, dog here, right? So uh, keep the larger goal in mind. So you mentioned in there uh, state taxes. So I think now would be a good time to chat about what type of state tax considerations people need to be mindful of. Yeah, to my mind, there are sort of two things to think about here. One, and it's a federal issue too, is estimated tax payments, right? So uh, for those of you who have self-employment income or significant non-W-2 income, you probably need to make a fourth quarter estimated tax payment. For most states, that's January 15th. For IRS, that's January 15th, 2021. So you get a little time into the new year to get that done. Um, the other thing to think about is deduction planning for state purposes. The big one that I see out in California deals with property taxes. So you may be aware that they now limit the state and local tax deduction to $10,000 for federal tax purposes. But out here in California, that doesn't apply. And in fact, in California, the standard deduction for a married couple is a little over $9,000. So what I see in my client base is a lot of folks who do a standard deduction for uh, federal tax purposes but then itemize for California tax purposes. And so there's a little bit of a play here with property taxes. I know in LA County, we get billed twice a year. Uh, we have two bills that come at one time for your property taxes. One is due in March and one is due in October. So everybody's paid their October property tax bill, hopefully, right? Because you want to keep your house. But you have a bill in your pocket that says, in March, I owe property taxes. You can go ahead and pay it in December and your cash basis for this purpose. It's not even a business. So uh, there's a, a play out here in California to pay your property taxes early to get more of a deduction onto your 2020 tax return. Um, this started a couple of years ago when they first changed the rule and everybody was doing this because there was a federal tax benefit. Now it's more of only a state tax benefit. But out here in California, where tax rates can go up to 13.3%, it might very well be worth it to, to prepay your build, but not yet due property tax bill. Nice. Yeah. And this is the same conceptual framework that you were talking about with the donor advised funds, right? It's the timing of deductions, the timing of paying for certain things based on, again, the strength that you have by being in the financial independence community. So many people have such an issue with cash flow, whereas we're making decisions, strategic decisions based on a position of strength. So that, again, I just wanted to take that step back and say that this is the same concept, but clearly we're talking federal versus state, but conceptually it's the same, the same idea. Absolutely right, Brad. You can get a timing benefit on your taxes when you're playing from a position of strength and the five framework very much helps you do that. All right. We only got a couple items left in our checklist. I feel like probably this is the time to talk about required minimum distributions and um, you know, I, I know a large percentage of our audience, frankly, is, is at an age where this is not yet on their radar, but I think it's important for them to know what it is, why it exists, who it's applicable to. And then we do have people in our audience that are, that are, that are using these and, and are forced to use these because it's again, required for some people. So, uh, if that's the case, let's not skip over that. Tell us a little bit more about RMDs. Absolutely, Jonathan. So required minimum distributions apply to all your retirement accounts except the Roth IRA. Um, and they, they kick in now at age 72. And they're essentially a way of the government getting back the tax deferral that they gave you in the past. Nice thing about 2020 is they're canceled. 
right? So in most years, we'd be saying, yeah, if you're subject to a requirement of distribution from your IRA, 401k, whatever it is, you got to take it before December 31st or you could be subject to a penalty. This year, not an issue, right? What you might want to do is take some of it and convert it to a Roth because you might be at a lower tax bracket because you don't have to take the entire RMD. But let me give a coming attractions for the Chooseify audience. And I think this is a big one. Inherited IRAs. Um, I think we're going to see in the American populace as a whole and in the Chooseify audience next five, 10 years, a lot of folks are going to inherit IRAs. And it does not matter how old you are. When you inherit an IRA, generally speaking, you're subject to either an RMD or you have a 10-year rule now under the new rules. And there's going to be a lot of planning that needs to happen when you inherit one of these IRAs or other retirement accounts. So that's like a coming attractions thing. It's not really a 2020 thing, but it's one of those things. If, if the action item in your audience is, hey, if I ever inherit a sizable retirement account, I need to be very intentional and I may need to seek professional assistance. That's a, a sort of a, a choosify coming attraction. Yeah, oh, that- man. Sean, you're uh, wetting my appetite too much. I've got five different questions I could ask you, but yeah, I guess to be continued. Well, well, hang, I wanted to, I wanted to point something out. <laughs> Jonathan I, can't hold back. Jonathan can't hold back. <laughs> I guess we could have Sean back another time, but let me no, just get I'll this go. one out there. So Sean, just a second ago, we st- we talked about how Roth IRAs do not have RMDs. That was one of the features, but when we're talking about inherited IRAs, we're not talking about necessarily traditional or Roth. We're just saying inherited IRAs as a parent category do. So if you inherit a Roth IRA, they just changed some rules. Like now what's, what's, yeah. what's the, tell us a little bit about, about that impact. And if you're inheriting a Roth IRA, what that means for you. Yeah. So a Roth IRA, by the way, under the new rules, big picture, still a great account to inherit. But for most beneficiaries, you're going to have to empty that account within the 10 years following the death of the original owner. There are some people, surviving spouses might be one of these people, Siblings, right? Adult siblings might be one of these people, the disabled. Um, there are there's a small group of people that might have RMDs from a Roth IRA going forward. Um, they're called eligible designated beneficiaries. I'm not gonna bore the audience with the details, right? So those people will still have RMDs from a Roth IRA. Um, spouses have all sorts of planning. We could talk about that. Generally speaking, they can avoid RMDs if they want to until they get to age 72 very generally speaking. But then for most people who inherit a Roth IRA going forward, they're going to have to empty the account within 10 years. There's not going to be any RMD until the 10th year. And at that point, the whole thing has to get liquidated. Not the end of the world, because it's just going to be tax-free, but now all that money will get interest and dividends on your tax return. So still a good account to inherit, but not as good as it once was where you could stretch out and keep a lot more tax-free growth for many more years. I brought that up really to do a setup for this bit, which is you, this is why you hear a lot of people even now saying what I'm leaving for my kids is my Roth IRA. Like that's that, that is going to be like, that is my segment, my little basket. I'm the, the money that I'm thinking I'm going to leave to my kids. That's going to be the Roth IRA. And even with the new rules, let's say that you fund your Roth IRA and then, you know, it goes up about $500 every year. Or so what the limits are, but you fund that for 45 years, your adult working lifetime, you don't need it because that's just one piece of what you have. You plan on burning everything else down, spending down to zero. The inheritance is going to be the Roth IRA. You end up with a million dollars in a Roth IRA in that account. That is what's left to your heirs, your kids. They now have to 
to take all of that out in 10 years, a million dollars, 10 years to get all of it out of the account. And that's obviously a lot of money, but, but it's all tax-free. And what they do once they get it out of the account is then up to them. But that's kind of the implications of you've simplified their life. All they have to do is just get the money out of the account and they want, but it all has to be out in 10 years. And is that, is that close to kind of what we're, we're dealing with here? That's generally true for your adult kids, for your minor kids. They actually, um, they're eligible designated beneficiaries until they turn 18 in most States. Um, but let's flip it, Jonathan. So let's, you said, Hey, I'm going to leave a million dollar Roth IRA to my kid. Great. But let's say you have an adult son and you leave him a $1 million traditional IRA. Guess what? He's got to now empty that out in 10 years. There's no RMD until the last year. So it's not like the institution is just going to say, hey, you got to take RMDs. He's going to need to be very intentional about, hey, you know, I've got a million dollar IRA. I got to empty it out in 10 years. I certainly don't want to empty it out all in one year but I need to track my own tax situation now because maybe I have up years and down years. Um, essentially if, if you're an adult and you inherit a large traditional IRA, you now have a big tax issue that you probably need professional assistance with because you have a 10 year time bomb going. And this is for those thinking about second generation Phi, Jonathan, you're absolutely right. The big picture, you are hundred percent correct. Get it into a Roth IRA. If you can afford to, Absolutely. It'll have some benefits for you. As long as you can afford to pay the taxes, get it into the Roth, and then it has big benefits for your kids. All right. There's only a couple things left in our checklist. This has been phenomenal. Appreciate the deep dive. I genuinely always come in with the base analogy time. I always walk away with a little bit that I didn't grab the first time. So hugely appreciating your time and the nuance you're adding to the conversation here, Sean. Uh, we talked about IRAs and HSAs in passing. Good news here for people, basically, is this a chance for you now with the hindsight 2020, no pun intended, but I think that phrase will continue to be popular. Uh, hindsight 2020 saying now with the benefit of the income for the first couple of years, how do I want to optimize my tax plan? You can take money earned in 2021 and then make a decision. Would I like to apply that to the past year by filling out my traditional IRAs and my HSAs? Because I was, you know, there's just some tax advantage there. You can do that all the way up to April 15th. I think it's just really important for people. It's truly hindsight 2020. What do you, what side of the ledger do you want to get it to go on? That's amazing to keep in the mind. But with that in mind, Sean, I think there's only a couple things left on our checklist. And I'd love to give you the floor to talk about beneficiary designation forms and then 2021 and beyond. Yeah. So year end is as good a time as any to update your beneficiary designation forms. You know, we've talked about on the Chooseify podcast, wills and trusts, and they're super important. But when you have uh, retirement accounts, financial accounts, generally speaking, those things are governed at your death by something called a beneficiary designation form or a payable on death form. And what matters is what the financial institution has on file. And you'll be surprised. Sometimes maybe you didn't hit that last submit button. You want to make sure your loved ones are taken care of and make, you know, especially if you had maybe in 2020, you got married, there was a death in the family, things happen in your life. And once a year, even if nothing did happen in your life, I recommend as a good practice, just make sure your beneficiary designation forms that are on file with the financial institution or your employer are up to date. And year end is as good a time as any to make sure that your loved ones are taken care of in that way. All right. That just sets us up for what's next. We got 2021. This is 2021 and beyond. Final thoughts on uh, what individuals in the FI community should be thinking about. Yeah, Jonathan, I think year end tax planning is great. 
But what's even better is long-term strategic tax planning to minimize your total tax over your lifetime. And that's best done with you know the whole picture in mind, not just year-end, not just one tax return. So January is a great time to start doing some long-term tax planning. Um, and, and a lot of folks have capacity to work with clients because it's not yet tax return season. Uh, people are coming off the holidays. People are you know a little refreshed. So think about long-term tax planning in addition to year-end tax planning. All right, Sean, this has been an incredibly valuable use of all of our times. Appreciate you leaning into this. Um, we will have the article that I know you released today as well going live. It'll be in the show notes for this episode. You can access our episode at choosefi.com slash 274. So it'll have the links to all of Sean's content and some of the additional articles that he mentioned. But on top of that, Sean, just direct traffic because you wrote, you know, this is ready to go. It's live. People want to go just go check it out directly. Or maybe there's additional articles that you mentioned that you're going to have linked up in that as well. If they want to just go directly to your site, find out more, get started on this or all the other content that was referenced. How do you suggest they do that? Yeah, you guys can find me on my blog, phytaxguy.com, the intersection of tax and financial independence. And you'll see the year-end tips there. Uh, you can also find me on my financial planning firm website, mulaneyfinancial.com. Again, Sean, for me and Brad, huge thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so very much, Jonathan. Really appreciate that. All right, my friends, you are in the right place. Uh, take action on this stuff. It's, it's, you know, if you're looking at investing over your lifetime, it's these small choices that you make each year that allow you to get better each year. You know, many of you probably listen to this are overwhelmed and realize how behind you are. That's awesome news because you had the wake up call. We can take small actions this year and then we can really realize that the whole year is the plan. It's not just April to April 15th that we suddenly try to figure it all out. We go into each year with a better and better plan that builds toward the future that we're designing for ourselves. That's the cool part. The fire is spreading, my friends. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less travel. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.